And thank you for joining in. This is, I think, the ninth episode of the Last Meter Talks uh, podcast series. And it's lots of fun to have today uh, Ray Gastiel and Krista Larson, uh, respectively, from Pittsburgh and Malmo. They'll present themselves in just one second. But the, the theme today, as uh, for all you know, talks in the Last Meter series, is issues that touch on and go beyond the Last Meter puzzle. The Last Meter puzzle, which is what I'm working on, is how do you integrate user services into the built environment, buildings and cities, meaning deliveries and experiences that move around the city and come to you. How do you integrate those in design and operations terms? Uh, and also, how do you optimize design around the potential that that will grow? That's the puzzle, because I think that's one of the largest uh, spatial design infrastructural changes coming in the next 20 years, but also the one, one of the ones with the most potential for increase in life quality, sustainability and um, social development. And so that's why this is set up. We have themes within that. And the, today's theme is a grand theme of uh, cities planning and the, and the service economy itself. And I know that both Ray and Krista have a lot of expertise in, in parts of that conversation. So what we'll do is perhaps you can present yourselves briefly um, in advance. I'll, uh, I'll, um, and then I will kick off from there. So maybe you go first, Ray. Hi, uh, thanks, John, and it's great to be on this with uh, Krista as well. Um, I uh, am a director of the Remaking Cities Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, which is housed in the School of Architecture and works closely with a range of departments. And our mission there is really to connect both the concepts of smart and connected cities and also more broadly questions of engagement, uh, greater equity and justice in the way we make our cities and everything ranging from how that impacts our, the way we look at adaptive reuse of uh, we are a place with a huge stock of older structures and how it works with mobility and micro-mobility, not just in the center city, but also in suburban and uh, semi-rural locations. I was formerly a city planning director of Pittsburgh, as you noted, and have been a, at a planning director roles in Manhattan and New York, as well as um, in Seattle. Great. Krista. Well, hello. Thank you for, for being a part of this discussion. And um, I was until last year the um, director of city planning in, in Malmö, uh, still uh, at the architect school in, in Lund as professor. Uh, I'm working today also as expert to the government in, in different uh, questions. Uh, uh, for example, a new housing policy that we are running right now. I also wrote the Swedish National Policy for Architecture, uh, which is now uh, going to be uh, implemented in, in different ways in Sweden, and I'm also into that process. So um, working mainly today as an advisor to different companies and, and cities around uh, Sweden and Europe. Um, just to mention, what, I think one of the ways in which we've all previously interacted was at the Pittsburgh uh, P4 event, which was five or six years ago, which I, uh, with the Heinz Endowments, helped to set up. Pittsburgh P4 stands for People, Planet, Prosperity, and what was the last P, Ray? Progress or something? Place of Performance. A performance People, Place, Planet, Performance. There you go. Uh, and it's essentially a conference around urban quality, innovation, sustainability. And um, uh, Krista was part of the Swedish delegation, which I helped put together as part of, you know, helping curate the event with the Brookings Institution. And Ray, I think at that time you were, uh, you were director in Pittsburgh planning office, if, that, if I remember correctly. Yes, I was. 
yeah. and uh, that is part of the, um, I think, the architecture in the background of this conversation, which is that Malmo um, came to be known as one of the leading Nordic cities in sustainability, thanks to, uh, I mean, thanks to its uh, thanks to its various institutions and mayors and its people and the culture, but also actually, Krista would never say this, but thanks to Kristel, and uh, Pittsburgh has had a number of cycles of innovation towards sustainability and um, modern ways to evolve the city. And Ray has been one of the um, waves and ways, Ray's work has been one of the waves of that. So neither of you would say that, but I have to bring forward your, your global stardom um, because it, it matters actually. People look at Pittsburgh and Malmo and, and see them as, as icons. And so it's great to have that. Um, yeah. For me to put that context in is essential since you're both too modest to, to say it. So um, let's just go jump on this and, and, and start with the, um, I mean, the kind of big crunchy question. And we're kind of, we can go through these pretty quickly. Obviously, we could spend hours on each of these questions, but let's sort of get a taster conversation going. Um, are cities working, right? Is the modern city format appropriate for the lifestyles we're living now and the lifestyles that are emerging, right? So let's start with you, Krista. Our cities yeah. fit for purpose? I think that's a very good question. Um, and um, the, the, the big cities, at, at least, they are meeting new challenges. And um, many of them uh, uh, as um, a result of the ongoing pandemic. Uh, I, I can feel that the big cities... Uh, maybe would be challenged from the smaller cities, from the mid-sized cities. And um, I have looked uh, into that question um, during the last period, both in Sweden and in Europe. And, and we can see tendencies that uh, means that the mid-sized cities are growing. Um, that means that people are choosing to live their lives in, in other ways than they are doing today. The, the more specific urban ideas uh, is challenged by the mid-cities, I would say. So, yeah, we will see. Something will happen after the pandemics and how much of the effects from this that, that will be continuing to the future, I don't really know. But something interesting is going to happen. I'm quite convinced about that. Mm. What about you, Ray? Obviously, we're going to have to be. I will. We will all be sensitive to the differences between the Nordic cities. I mean, the Nordic and European cities and, and, and U.S. cities. But let's be, let's find some generics in the middle if we can. Yeah. Uh, so now, Ray, what do you feel? Are cities fit for purpose? Yeah, I think they actually are fit for purpose, and I think they're going to stay fit for purpose. I think there are some questions about. Uh, in a way, there's questions about some of the larger cities because of if we're going to have a rolling crises as part of our urban life. Uh, the rolling crises are actually, in some cases, a lot tougher in the largest cities because the systems are so enormous and when they fail, the consequences are so large. Uh, in smaller cities, are you know probably have a more if if they're have enough resources, and if they have a kind of redundant infrastructure, they're going to be able to handle them a little bit better. I think that's part of why people are have been looking. And, you know, statistically, they don't really have very strong numbers about people moving to smaller cities. Uh, anecdotally, there's a lot of strong, you know, especially people who are fleeing the, the most expensive regions, not just the densest regions. But cities, I think that to me, the key is whether a city can handle the range of types of work, types of education, types of recreation, 
and types of living that uh, people uh, desire. And the fact is, they uh, certainly a city like Pittsburgh does a pretty good job on all that. I mean, it, where it fails is whether that's as equitably, whether it's equitably distributed, and those are the, mm-hmm. sort of the question. But but um, whether you can meet your equity goals within a city today, and that's a challenge, probably a more intense one for North American cities than the Nordic examples. But uh, certainly here, we're trying to like, you know, still recognizing the cities sort of can, especially I think uh, smaller cities can handle uh, the current challenges pretty well. Mm. Um, when you talk about rolling crises, right, because infrastructure is interlocking and parts of it are not functioning, that doesn't truly sound, I hear what you say about delivering value when it works other than equity, but rolling crises sounds like cities that do not work. And how realistic is the, is the specter of infrastructure breakdown? Well, I, 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 the rolling crises are, and I'm not talking about sort of everyday infrastructure challenges. I'm talking about the severe weather, right. climate change related challenges, as well as things like the pandemic, which of course could be interpreted as a climate change yeah. uh, yeah. consequence as well. But I, I think that those are, I think it's no matter how well cities are run and no matter how good their infrastructure is, they're going to be stressed uh, in, in, in the future, in the next 10 years, one way or another. Uh, for example, at the Texas, uh, you know, right now, I mean, we were talking about this uh, briefly before that, you know, a city like Austin that has actually made great strides in terms of addressing climate change, at least in policy and to some degree practice terms. But all that planning and work of the past you know, 15 years has not focused on, on a colder weather. And here, here they are with that right. situation. So mm. I think there's just there's crises that are going to are inevitable, uh, even with the best management. And it, so it's just that it's just a question is like a big, big question of management. Uh, is there are there sizes that do better in, 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 in crisis situations? And I, I don't you know, I'd like to look at the data more on that. But um, I, I uh, my I think people's perception is that smaller cities can be more more nimble. Mm. Well, I, I think we can we can see in Sweden in the statistics that uh, uh, middle class families uh, are moving out from the big cities. It's not a big uh, amount of, of people, but mm-hmm. still uh, we can see that. And and there's of, of course an effect of digitalization. I mean, it's possible to to live a, a good life in a smaller city and just going into work two days a week or something. So, so I consider that the mid-sized cities in a regional context uh, and with good transportation and communication, of course, uh, they could challenge the big cities. So, but in, in the end, it, it will means that it, what, is, what would be the important thing is how people choose to live their lives. I mean, what do they think as the most convenient way of, of living every day? And, and um, as you say, it's not only a matter of management. Uh, I think it's not the big question. Most of the Nordic cities are quite well managed. Uh, but of course, new lifestyles connected to the climate question and, and other things will be challenging all the things that we have done as far as today. So, so talking about planning then, uh, I think that planning has to uh, be more generic. Uh, maybe we will uh, uh, plan with more scenario planning than we have done before, just to meet quite unexpected um, 
um, things that will occur in, in, in how people are choosing to live their lives. Yeah, so I, 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 yeah. But I just wanted I to say, say two. <laughs> you talk, John. I'm Carry sorry. on. I was going to say what I mean. I was just going to pass over to you on that point, which is you know, um, if there is. Um, if there are, I mean, there, there are clearly some challenges. I mean, there's a transitional challenge to handle climate change and the stresses and the uncertainty that brings. And there's also an equity challenge. Those are the two challenges that at least you've raised, Ray, among others. Even if there's some sense in which cities are still highly functional, um, uh, what is the role of planning in that? And is the role of planning changing? So I was just kind of capturing Chris's point and throwing it back to you, basically. Well, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. <laughs> the uh, I, I'd note a couple of things. One is the classic reason to go to the suburbs in the sort of North America was often stated as sort of a better life for you and your children and then schools or any number of other things. It's, there were a lot of reasons which were not always about those and were also social and uh, other, you know, less palatable political reasons. But there was also, but what's happened now is like, it, it's, it's interesting to see and because of the work that Krista and others have done and the work that we're doing in Pittsburgh, I'm interested to see whether the whole kind of biophilia side of going to the more smaller areas, which was that you have more green in your life and you're more connected mm -hmm. to nature and so forth, which is often stated among the reasons and among the preferences for making that kind of choice. But there's been so much work in the past 20 years, really extraordinary work done for the greening of cities, whether it's in Malmo, whether it's in Pittsburgh taking its existing green infrastructure, but enhancing it, whether it's, you know, the whole new ways of looking at uh, sort of green in cities. You know, we have a 200-foot mm. setback from the riverfronts now in terms of thinking about a riparian system. All kinds of things are so different than certainly 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in terms of perspectives on this. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's translating and giving people the kind of... Uh, experience of you know a more of an outdoor life and so forth and making them feel satisfied within denser environments but which do have you know because there's all sorts of other benefits of, of mm. uh, pedestrian mm. culture and so forth that's what so i think we're gonna there's gonna be a lot of things shaking out because the other reason people are again at least in this sort of the newspaper stories which i'm really i, I the, the data as i can see in the u.s is a little bit sort of there's, there's some contradiction there was one forbes story that said everyone's moving to the suburbs and then like there was sort of counter data and so forth. So I don't really know where we are right now. But the um, but the, the the story is also just because of remote work, if you're going to be at home all the time, you want more space. Mm. <laughs> that's a that's a bit which you know the, the attractions of the smaller unit, which is sort of good environmentally, but this is a this is going to be a the the scenarios for energy use and so forth and, and environmental impact are going to be changing if in fact we see people pulling back from like, you know, you see the U.S. people moving towards a more European scale, at least, you know, in, in the cities, in terms of, you know, amount of, then, then we're kind of pushing, pulling back to this larger square footages. I mean, uh, the micro apartment, the micro unit movement is actually, I think, in, in real trouble with uh, a world of remote work, because if you're, you never, all the interdependency of having an office and your life really happens in cafes and so forth, uh, and 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 shared workspaces. That model is uh, is is going to change to some degree because there's going to be a great deal more time at home. Mm -hmm. Even even if we get back to, you know, there's very different 
very the, the the prognosticators have very different views on how many people are going back to the office. Uh, I know what I think, but um, but even no matter what, there's going to be more work done at home, and that changes people's perspective on their their personal environment. I agree with that. I think that would be that tendency to work more at home that would be present even in the future. Uh, the question is how how much you will work at home. But that means, as you say, it's also um, inflict the housing question, uh, square meters and uh, that kind of thing, but also how to share uh, square meters in some ways. Could you work oh. together somewhere? Uh, will there be some new concepts, some new workplaces uh, in the city center so they will be more alive? So, I mean, we, we will see a lot of new concepts coming up here after the pandemics. But another question that you are also mentioning, that is the public spaces, the green spaces. And, and um, there are some research being done during the pandemic in Sweden uh, that shows that the green spaces are very important during the pandemic, just for, for, for two reasons. One reason is to be alone, to leave home, to be, to be alone, but also to give the possibility to meet other people people with distance. So the importance of, of the public spaces have been strengthening during the pandemic. But in the future, uh, I think that we will also look at the green masses, the biomass um, in the green spaces to be more important when we should solve the climate question. I, I totally agree. I think that you're, it's, a, it's a really good point. I think cities, when you ask, this is part of the question, when when John asked, are cities uh, suited to the purpose? I think because of the investment that has been made in sort of re-greening of cities and rethinking mm -hmm. about the sort of human role in cities is actually, it helps the humans more than anybody else because of the uh, potential impact on climate, positive impact on climate and the positive impact on social experience. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's changing architecture as well. I think the, you know, the, the, por the porch is back uh, in, in a... You know, porches were in new urbanism. Porches were often, you know, frankly decorative. You know, you'd, you'd see all these communities that built all these lovely porches as though it were, <laughs> you know, nineteen twenties. Uh, you know, wood frame houses with lovely porches, and no one ever sat on them. They were always indoors <laughs> with the air conditioning. And you know, and and the, that's um, that's not. I mean, it's a probably a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a we're we're um, generalizing here but uh but but now actually i think that porches have you know we we know people are occupying porches it's a whole it's a whole different way and this is where if we have a i think there is a kind of uh, certainly i have never seen people willing to sit outside you know nordic countries have the experience of people sitting outside when it's um you know i guess 10 degrees centigrade or something you know but uh that was not uh, a North American weather. I know, right? I know. That was not a Nobody North American. Sit outside in freezing weather with blankets. Cafes supply blankets. The I know, but that, but that's now exists planet. here. It was never in the U.S. Seattle a little bit, but never in Pittsburgh. And now, I mean, I think you know, big, I, I generalize, but it's still, it's a radical change to see when people will right. be yeah. outside to have a social. Really, frankly, they're outside to have a social experience. I mean, they could probably get a beer uh, at home. Yeah. But, but um, um, considering about the, the green uh, spaces and so on, I, I think if, if the big cities should meet the tendency that middle class is moving out, out uh, it could be uh, with a strategy to strengthening the neighborhoods. I mean, um, strengthening the, the quality of life in the neighborhood. 
that could be something that will bring them back because the big cities are really outstanding in, in culture and other things. That also is, is interesting for, for families. Um, one, one, one point to share, to share, because I think it helps in, in balancing the, the, the discussion between North America and, and, um, and Europe is distinguishing between working from home and remote work. Mm. Uh, I mean, I spent some time looking into this and, and writing a bit about it, but basically um, the presumption that if you're not working from an office, you're working from your home, I think is too extreme. And mm -hmm. while in pandemic times, I think it, it, it's, it makes sense, right? That's the default move. Mm. I think what we're seeing is it's more than just people working in cafes, right? It's looking for a semi-formal structure and it hasn't yet bled into projects I've seen or been involved with in real estate development, but I do think it will be part of that. So for example, and this is this is this is itself a European and sort of northern um, North American dichotomy is that the, the multifamily housing format is the dominant format in modern European cities, with mm. some exceptions for London, but that's changing. But basically the housing block uh, is a, is in principle a many it's many many there's every economic layer can can live in that housing format in uh, in Europe and in that environment you can well imagine a work uh, a remote work concept where there's a hub right it's not a home office attached to your apartment it's actually essentially a co-working space in your apartment building or something approaching that mm. that's a, that's a format I think will emerge and it is a bit different from uh, what you were pointing to, Ray, which is literally working from home. And I think part of the distinction there is that in the U.S. context, almost all of the housing debates are, I mean, something I've spent a lot of time in because it you know, affects, as you'll see the rest of this conversation, are you focusing on formats that are predominantly single family or predominantly multifamily? And in the U.S., it's anomalous in the sense that the U.S. housing stock is predominantly single family. Right. Whether it's, you know, whether it's people in, in remote areas or in the suburbs, it's 65 percent single family versus 35 percent multifamily, whereas in most of Europe, it's the other way around or more extremely multifamily. And that, I think, touches on, as I say, the issue of whether it's working from home, which is definitely your, you know, your sort of next step if, if you know, you're in a single family context work versus, you know, working remotely, which could be something more distributed into the urban fabric or at least into the building envelope. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that debate has yet to play itself out yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very clear way. Mm -hmm. But I think, John, that we will see some new concepts. Uh, I mean, Pittsburgh and Malmö are quite familiar uh, comparing to the city fabric and so on. Uh, and and um, I think that we will see some new concepts concerning how we are working together in new hubs. And, and yeah. um, uh, I believe that those hubs, uh, they can also be some kind of incubators for new knowledge and uh, uh, finding new economical structures and so on. I think it's really, really interesting to look into this, that question. Mm -hmm. but, but also when you are, are I think uh, I'm absolutely aware of uh, the differences between the um, US and, and the Nordics here concerning the housing uh, or, or the way of living. But um, I mean, uh, in, in some kind of generic way, uh, you can see that uh, the, the cars can't take that kind of space that they are doing today. And that is mm. a question for both America and, and, and Europe. Mm, sure. and, and, and when you are reducing the, the, the space for the cars, there is a fantastic possibility to make cities greener and, and using the, the spaces that would be left over to do something really interesting to strengthen the quality of life in the city. Mm, yeah. So that's, that's something I'm, I'm thinking a lot about and what would happen here. 
so, so let me just jump through because we we'll, we'll kind of keep on that track. This specific point about parking and and, and vehicles because it's part of the. I mean, so we've we've lined this up for the conversation, but just to say, we've got a lot of themes to discuss at the sort of bigger picture of of modern. Uh, cities and planning and so forth, but let's let's get let's sort of as it were bounce back out to those by pinpointing a few of the of the more specific issues around uh, around this new service economy. There isn't really a name for it. Where you know what what the on demand economy, the service economy, the sharing economy, none of these things are quite stable in literature or in or in practice in any way. And so there isn't quite a name for it. So the name I'm using is for the time being the new service economy. And what I mean by that are things that you buy that come to you wherever you may be. So it could be cleaning services, it could be laundry, it could be food, it could be hot, it could be groceries, it could be pharmacy goods, it could be dog walking or whatever. Now, the the, the first question I, I have for you for you guys is, um, let's just see it in broad economic terms. Do you feel that it's a dominant phenomenon, this idea that you spend money online and something comes to you, or do you see it as peripheral? Because partly it's grown under the pandemic, but maybe it'll become something else maybe we'll go back to no local shops what do you feel the economic status of this sort of broad service economy phenomenon is well i, I give you in the u.s when uh, before the pandemic uh there was you know the constant sort of refrain that bricks and mortar retail was disappearing mm. and in terms of square footage it wasn't quite as accurate as most people thought because uh, bricks and mortar wasn't really uh it was declining, but not nearly at the rate people thought. But it was being because bricks and mortar was becoming all stores like Walmart, yeah. and so and that was becoming so the the local stores, the smaller stores, and even the old fashioned department stores were all disappearing and being replaced by people who were still going to shop, but they were buying them in these kind of superstores. With the pandemic, I think we're going to see. You know, I'm not sure that's going to come back. I think we're going to see that no, actually, bricks and mortar really is declining, and it's not going to ever come back. As mm -hmm. you know from people just to the commercial, you know, trying to lease commercial space. You know, new buildings next to me have uh, gone unoccupied on their lower floors, and these are like very attractive contemporary apartment buildings, sort of unlike a European apartment block, uh, mm -hmm. and they're unoccupied, and that's simply because the strength of retail is weak. The the uh, but you know you you know that the the clusters and the hubs of kind of urban culture that have sustained have been service oriented, restaurant oriented, experience oriented, and those actually can remain strong. We shall see what you know that's going to change now. But I think there's no doubt that I think in the, in the U.S. context, the, the way which you kind of have to take a look at is really. It's, Amazon's not the only one, but it's one that sort of overwhelms the narrative and also statistically is overwhelming. And that type of experience, that type of getting all your stuff from Amazon is going to, that's not going to go away. It's not going to be the, the pandemic ends and people all go back to shopping. I think those are patterns and habits that are simply too well organized and too efficient, frankly, to, to mm -hmm. fail, so to speak. And the only thing that mm -hmm. I ask when people think about that is that they just, it, and that it's, and we can, there's lots of work to do to make that more efficient and lots of technology, even for all of Amazon's interest in efficiency. It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of stuff that could be much more efficient in terms of those systems. And the second part is just to remember that it's not magic. I mean, there's a, there's still distribution centers. There's still real estate. There's still bricks and mortars. It's just in a different place. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and, and the, so that all that said, it's like, it, it does, it, it's very much impacting. I mean, the, here we have the main perspective 
uh, tenant and quite likely for what was the Westinghouse Research Center, a beautiful uh, corporate campus. Uh, and and uh, little, is, is now going, is going to be an Amazon distribution center. Hmm. So uh, these sort of like very symbolic How, how close is that to the center of town, out of curiosity? That's about, uh, it's the borough of Churchill. It's about, um, it takes about 35 minutes to get there, let's say. So it's not yet taking over city center infrastructure, but it's some of Amazon's distribution. Well, actually, there's an Amazon distribution center coming uh, uh, about um, a thousand feet from where I'm sitting right, as well. Go. In Lawrenceville, yeah. in, in, in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, I think that we in in Sweden we saw the tendency uh, that um, I mean most young people they they was internet shopping even before the pandemic and right. that that be quite obvious today that that that's the way of how we are shopping today that would be on the internet, but um, at the same time you can say that as it is today it's not sustainable with with all these transportation that it really has so so there has to be a change in uh, being more effective and being more sustainable being more connected and, and, and so on so i think that will that will happen something here it must happen something here but we can see quite clear tendencies on the city centers uh, they are in some sense abandoned uh, uh, the first fr- the, the the floors uh, to to the streets they are empty uh, much more empty today than than before and and we have to uh, reinvent the city centers in some way to reprogram them there has mm-hmm. to be new things happen in the city centers mm-hmm. maybe there there will be a period of time when they were struggling quite severe against all the the, the new things but in, in some way, uh, they had to find a new a new concept for the city centers. Yeah. Maybe the retail, and the, I mean, the, the internet shopping would be a part of that with yeah. delivery centers and uh, accommodations yeah. that we haven't seen so far. But there yeah. will happen something which is interesting. But in, in a period of time, it would be really challenging for, for, for the city centers. Carry on, Ray. Well, one of the one of the models is that what, what's already happened is going on for more than a decade is that the stores are essentially showcases for the mm, product. Yeah. You know, they're not. Yeah. It's like the Trek store, the bicycle store here is like you don't actually get your bike there, at least not for months, but you get, get to look at one, mm. and then uh, and that's I think that's a very contemporary. I think the, the younger population that's become very normal to them. The way that you like you go see a, uh, it's a demonstration product. Uh, and the, and the, but really, all it's it's all part of the internet to, uh, kind of delivery system. I think that's right. I, I think that one way of I mean one way of framing the change right is to split out um, the the sort of economic channels into roughly three. So you have um, uh, classic brick and mortar where you go and buy something in a store, and you have. Um, what you could call the online or the on-demand economy, when you buy something online and it comes to you. And then you have, broadly speaking, what I would call the experiential economy, right? And that's a blend between classic live services, so restaurants and bars mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, shows and whatever. And exactly what you describe, right, which is what I call showrooming or showroom retail, right? Where you're not 
you're not actually physically buying anything. There's no fulfillment in hand. Even if you pay in the store, you still don't get the stuff in store. And what you go to the store for is for the wraparound experience, the brand experience, the cappuccino, to see your friends, to be associated with the brand, to try the goods on, to test the goods, whatever. And I think that that, that split is very interesting just in sort of seeing the different interstitial, you know, interstices of, you know, retail and buying online and experiencing, you know, they, they all overlap in various ways and that will all play itself out. What then gets super interesting is to see how that the, the channel dynamic of retail interfaces with space, right? Because the physics of all of that stuff is actually very definitive, as you say, you know, there still needs to be places where things are. And so, for example, if you take, you know, the issues of, um, let's take showrooming, for example. I mean, I have a, there's a, there's a very interesting dynamic around uh, showroom retail, okay? If you have a showroom retail environment where you can't buy most of the goods in hand, you can pay or you can you know, test them or whatever, you can get some. You create the interest, in this interesting dynamic where you as a user can walk around and signal that you have bought something from a certain brand, all right? But mm. you aren't encumbered with the logistics of a full set of goods you may have bought, which interestingly opens up a dynamic that we haven't discussed very much in sort of planning theory and urban theory, which is one of the reasons why people go home at the end of the day is because they have to carry their goods home, mm. right? So if you go shopping and 80% of it is sent around the logistics channel to arrive when you're at home or tomorrow or whatever, you can just carry on going to a restaurant or a bar or a club with a small bag of branded goods that weighs nothing but signals that you are a shopper with a certain brand in mind. And those, those interstitial, those, those sort of overlaps, those edge issues of you have new models, new channel models for the economy and new logistical implications is very interesting. Then you have just the big physics of it, which is where is it? How's it getting around? How efficient is that? And I think mm. on, the, on the efficiency side right now, one of the things that's most dramatic in terms of, you know, sort of phenomena under the surface of it is who's paying for what? Because most of the logistics model at the last mile right now is massively oversubsidized by, by, by venture capital, which is just not sustainable. Uber cannot keep losing a billion dollars a year. Mm. Right. Even Amazon cannot keep burning money to send goods out cheaply. Um, and, and so I think those two issues, right, you have the channel issue. What is the channel? Is it online? Is it, you know, is it enabled by an experience? Is it something you actually buy um, in, in, you know, when you're there? Plus the physics and the, you know, the sort of social dynamics of logistics. Those are, for me, the sort of the layers interacting right now. And it's mm. very complicated. I mean, the, the, the question I guess I have for you is, in actual planning terms, meaning what the city can insist on, what it's aiming at when it's planning city centers or logistical areas or warehouses or routes, do you feel that you as planners are on top of the question or you're behind the question or you're hoping it will play out? You talked about scenario planning, Krista. How do you handle this kind of complexity? Yeah. I, I think that planning has to be much more flexible uh, that, than uh, it is today because we don't really know how the new concepts looks like. Uh, so, so you can't reduce the way of, of using a floor with regulations. It, it should be much more open uh, because uh, uh, as you said, John, uh, the, 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 when, when you're buying things from the internet, I mean, it, I bought some things now during Christmas time and I had to go and get three different deliveries 
instead yeah. of going to one shop in the city center as I did before yeah. and, and, and uh, buy everything there one time. So it has to be much more, uh, I mean, absolutely, you know, and that's not sustainable at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can also see new concepts here in Malmö. I think it's Vasa Kronan. Uh, they have a concept where you can um, uh, go and get your, your, your delivery from Amazon and what it is. And at the same time, um, have lunch. Uh, you can buy some quite simple accessories that you maybe need. And uh, you can also sit and work there. So, I mean, that's a concept that's quite interesting. And we will see a lot more of them. I think it's uh, what Chris was talking about is really important because it, it is a planning question. And people don't think of it as one, but it is. It's a planning question. How do we make, you know, the, Places like Carnegie Mellon have people, you know, working on these programs and softwares all the time. There are all kinds of ways that we could have more efficient delivery, uh, mm-hmm. that not to make three trips, not three different things. And that's a, that is a, a kind of political will to make, um, you know, we've, it's been used. We've, we've gotten more efficient delivery in this region for like people that were, you know, uh, to sort of address some of the challenges with the interruption of the school lunch, free lunch programs try and get food to people and using AI has been part of that, you know, software of my colleagues and, you know, we're associated with the um, Metro 21 and other parts of the university. Uh, There is, you know, there are tools to be used. And like, that's just a matter of political will that that's a priority that you're going to make that more efficient because you can't, Mm. it makes no sense. Mm. You know, we stressed out the streets with our own trips and now we're stressing out the Mm. streets with Amazon truck trips. That doesn't work. The second part that goes with that is that we need to kind of, a company like Amazon, if there was anybody who could move to entirely electric fleet within five years, it would be Amazon. They have right. you know, the depth of resources essentially incalculable. It's the depth of resources greater than most governments or countries in the world and larger than sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So you know, it's, uh, uh, this is, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical that you know, when, you know, I, I don't know that one can push this in you know, the, the, the latest distribution center, but the fact is, that if planner's role is mm. in fact to say, you know what, you know, your vehicle should be electric and we'll tell you why first, mm. because mm. it's good for the earth. Second, because many of the traffic anxieties that all of these communities have revolve around, you know, not just the number of vehicles, but it's literally the, the it's pollution and the noise and the kind of, it changes if we can actually move. So if we, so it's just another reason to move faster towards a kind of fossil uh, fuel free economy and this is these are our opportunities because it looks like we're still going to have vehicles moving around a lot (laughs) that's not going away we may move in them less but we got it and those are those need to be applied to those the the delivery system just the same as you would to people thinking about you know their journeys to work and all that kind of stuff we need to think about journeys to delivery yeah, but still the vehicles who the vehicles that will um, uh, driving around in the cities they should look uh, different uh, compared to uh, how they look today. I mean, they have to be smaller, they have to be electric, and so on. Uh, yeah. So, so hold on a second, because we'll take we'll take all this step by step. Actually, this is this is this is in the way part of the meat of the of the whole conversation. Yeah. But just to just to set it up slightly to kind of separate out a few different tracks of of opportunity and optimization under the under the logistics heading. I mean, when, when I, uh, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the base two work, talk about logistics and what's wrong with it, what we start with is 
helping people understand that the baseline of users using their own vehicles or just traveling in any way to go and get something is what we call amateur logistics. And when we, when we speak about it in that way, it actually opens the door to people's minds to, hang on a second, I'm actually doing logistics. When I go to a store, I'm not just shopping, I'm actually performing the logistics function myself, mm. right? And it's just in every way inefficient. Even if you buy bag, bags of groceries and fill your car, it is very inefficient. Your car is inefficient, your routing is inefficient, your loading is inefficient, your movement around the store is inefficient, everything about it is inefficient. Now, the current model that's replacing it is professionalized amateur logistics. When Instacart pickers get your groceries and put it in a bag and bring it on a bicycle, it's just somebody else doing your amateur logistics for you. There's no efficiency gain. And a lot of Amazon is actually in that category. They do have efficient mm. warehouses, but they do not have efficient individualized routing because it's individualized. That's the nature of it. And if you, if you look at middle mile logistics, how they do logistics between warehouses around the world, they would never dream of that. And if you ask yourself a question, why do we not have retail stores where everyone just asks for something to be delivered to the store when they want it? The store, the retail industry would say, that would be insane. It would be incredibly inefficient. And yet we're expecting that's what's going to work now that we're saying residences and offices are where the things go, as opposed to retail locations. So middle mile logistics, where there must be aggregation, is obviously the way to make logistics work. And I think that is going to come. And I think that that's the first step, right, mm -hmm. is that the vehicle side is secondary to the, uh, to the aggregation dynamic, because disaggregated logistics it may be professionalized, like in the Amazon case, but it is inherently amateurish. Uh, and I think that that's where cities have a massive role, is to say to the operators, okay, guys, look, you need to do professionalized routing to within 500 meters of the home or the office or wherever the final point is, because otherwise it's too inefficient. Mm. There's just too many vehicles. Mm. Uh, and you're going to have to collaborate. Now, we can, you can put land on that as a city. You can put regulations on it. You can put finance. You can put all sorts of things to insist on aggregated logistics, which is what the entire logistics industry is always used for middle mile, first mile logistics. But I think that it will be cities and planners that push that harder <laughs> because they can say, I'm sorry, you're just clogging up our streets. Mm. This is just inefficient, even if you use green vehicles. And then, then it comes to the issue of green vehicles itself, which is another pressure point which is okay yes you can use green vehicles but you should use green vehicles but also you can as you use smaller vehicles mm. right i mean one of the reasons to say this is because actually in the industry right now which we are in it's moving extremely fast it's moving faster than the planning conversation right one of the reasons i wanted to have this conversation is to bring you the news right that so for example one of the uh, you know hopeful incoming investors in our company it has in the portfolio a logistics company that's doing logistics uh, land management on behalf of Amazon and others, and they are looking square in the face the opportunity of being an aggregated logistics hub where they take in deliveries and re-deliver them. Now, mm -hmm. they would like cities to be a partner with that, but they don't know what they're doing. They need planners involved. Mm -hmm. They're just literally right now parking aggregators. Um, and we want that to be delivery aggregation because on our side, launched literally yesterday, the company's doing weekly delivery boxes, which retailers can put their stuff in to simplify mm. all of the last mile mm. users. Mm. Now, all I'm saying there basically actually is that whether it's you know the aggregation piece or it's the vehicle piece and how those two come together with larger vehicles and then disaggregate to smaller vehicles, mm. I think that the cities are in a position to, particularly guys like you and cities like yours, to say, okay, guys, one step back. There's tons of value here. Exactly as you say, Ray, none of this is going away let's just pause before Armageddon begins, right? But, but in some sense, the process already started because we are having restrictions <laughs> for, um, for driving uh, big lorries uh, in, in the city centers. Uh, I mean, if we are regulating 
that it's only uh, allowed to drive by electrical cars and, and uh, some some sizes. Um, that that would be um, something that really will fastening the process. But also we have in some way uh, a structure for solving this. I mean, all big um, car parking houses around the cities and even in the in, in the cities. They they should could be transformed to to logistic centers instead. We can see that already that you are sharing these square meters, but you are also sharing the buildings during time over the day. Mm. So they have a road twenty four seven because sometimes the people are parking their big cars and other times uh, that there will be some 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 um, log logistic centers. So I mean mm. the structure is there. And that means that planning must help them to to take this um, uh, car parking houses um, into to the system in a new way. Mm. One thing that could right. change this radically, and uh, and I I don't know if it's going to happen, but I, I have hopes for this. If in fact the trucking industry, uh, with you know tractor trailers, the large lorries, uh, is um, moves towards either true AV or kind of autonomous vehicles or very highly augmented, that will probably happen on the highways first. Mm. And for that to actually, and so we still let, you know, attractor trailers into the city, into the heart of cities um, in, the, in, the, in virtually any North American city. And this, it may be with the, a, the rise of AV, if the trucking industry moves in that direction, they're going to have to stop outside the city and have it transferred to smaller vehicles. Right. right. And that's so I, I again, it's a, there's a all sorts of costs and complexities in that. But if we're realistic about the future of AV, I think that it, it happens on sort of dedicated routes first, long before it happens all throughout a city. And exactly. um, and so uh, I think that that's one I, I, that's something that has needed to happen for so long. It's like we we spend. I live in an area that's transitioned from a former industrial use, and um, it's. And I, you know, we, I like the, you know, some industrial use continues, but the fact is some of it just basically involves is, is really distribution and involves enormous trucks having a very hard time making it through city streets. Um, and, uh, and, and for people's safety, you know, the whole vision of safety and also to get what Krista was saying, if we're going to move to smaller vehicles, you can't have enormous vehicles sharing space with the type of vehicles you're talking about. Right, and, exactly. And that's and we how we get there. I mean, especially in, in um, on this side of the Atlantic, is a is a is a huge a huge challenge. And that's you know, yeah. I, I do believe in micro mobility lanes and all that kind of stuff. I think we've got to we, the, the smaller vehicles. You know, there's still going to be movement. The question is, how can it move smaller? And and frankly, we also have to movement at slower speeds. That is a you yeah. know, and that's uh, again one of the promises of AV or even augmented is that you essentially you don't let people go faster. Uh, yeah. Not so, not a popular, not a popular, not not something to run for mayor on. Uh, but uh, it's going to be. But I don't know how we, if we're going to have smaller vehicles and shared vehicles and a true, you know, basically everyone has to slow down, even the high speed commuter bicyclists. So there's a lot to a lot yeah. to deal with on this one. And, and what you are saying now is very interesting. I I, I think because. Um, when we um, will slow down all the transports in, in the city, it's easier for bicycles and, and even pedestrians to compete with these vehicles. Right. Uh, so so right. that would be uh, a better environment in, in the cities, thanks to that. 
but to make things more complicated, I would say in Sweden at least, we think that goods must be transported on rail much more than they are today. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's not, not the easiest question to solve. Uh, because we are now, as, as I consider, discussing more uh, big trucks and smaller trucks uh, and the small ones running by electricity. But in the end, we have to transport much more efficient by train. Right. Uh, yeah. Go on. Come on, Ray. No, no, I'm good. Well, so I just wanted to, just to bring a couple of those points together. I mean, you were talking about parking. Um, and uh, um, as, as, as one of the dynamics to, to optimize logistics. I mean, the, 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 an example of what's happening in the market, which is, which is not well known, uh, is a company called Reef. Have either of you heard of Reef? No. Nope. Reef Technologies. Okay, so, Reef, so this is a good, good test right now. So Reef Technologies is based in Miami. Uh, it received in November of last year $700 million from an investor known as SoftBank. SoftBank was the principal investor in WeWork. Why did, what is Reef and why did SoftBank invest in them? Well, if I tell you that the Reef used to be called Park Jockey, you start to get a clue. Reef was simply a parking aggregator. They would mm. take parking space from real estate owners and operators and they would parcel it out as you know, flexible parking space for users. Mm. And they realized, wow, we're sitting on one of the greatest business opportunities in history, which is to convert parking space into what? Into integrated services <laughs> under the new service economy model for real estate developers, owners, managers, and users, mm. right? And so they basically are the biggest investment in the business model grand area that we base two are focused on, which is that at some point, the sales channel dynamic and the logistics and spatial dynamic mm. overlap to such an extent that you cannot separate them. Mm. So to give you some specifics for what Reef is doing, it just goes to show you how fast the, the market is moving. There's lots of discussion around you know, food delivery, because food delivery mm. is a big part of the on-demand service economy, but it's extremely inefficient because it has to be you know, delivered, collected from lots of diffuse restaurants and then delivered around the city. So what Reef has said, okay, we're gonna set up mobile kitchens right outside the building in the parking space. That's their model, that's part of the model. So they are now leasing mobile kitchens to restaurant operators saying, use are what they call ghost kitchen mm. and cook your food. And you have customers literally within hundred meters. Fascinating. Mm. Now, now the point there, which I want to make is basically on two levels. One is that exactly as you predicted, Krista, parking spaces as a, at a premium. And, and secondly, as, as is the base two last meeting model, what happens is that as you start pushing harder and harder on the issue of logistics and services and efficiency and scale, and you know who controls what piece of the puzzle, you do start getting these hybrids where the space and the service necessarily interact. Now, what I think I find really fascinating is what can cities can do to, to steer that, mm. right? What's the regulatory framework for a ghost kitchen, basically a mobile kitchen in a, in a container, that can be put into a parking space tomorrow, um, and and so that's on the that's on the um, that's on the uh, um, sort of you know the conversion of parking piece in terms of logistics overall, right? I think what's, what's very interesting is that uh, the the pricing of this starts to be you know an issue for the for the logistical companies. They want to have models that can give more efficient outcomes. The retailers want more specific outcomes that you know, satisfy their 
their brand. And so it's not just this monolith argument, just do volume. We need more specific models to emerge. And, and then again, an interesting thing that starts to happen is that the real estate developers say, oh, they have leverage here. If I design a building that is optimized for cycle delivery, in other words, there is no place to bring a large vehicle up to the building, I can force retailers into a more specialized delivery relationship. I'll sell your goods, enable you to live, deliver your goods through my property, but you have to you have to send it on a bicycle. It's a wonderful sweet spot because you can say to the residents, it's safer because you both mentioned the safety and the user dynamic of vehicles separately from its efficiency, and it's an amenity function. These brands deliver on cycles to my property. Look at what I've achieved for my users. And so those two examples, right, of how both from the um, parking piece and the logistics piece. The integration uh, of well, this is what we call the integration of user services. Mm. Um, just to put that into a parking question, I mean, into a planning question, and then push it out to where you were you were uh, taking the conversation, Ray, about micro mobility. How much control, all right, uh, do you do you feel that city planners actually have over logistics? Is it something that's not really in their remit? Is it something that should be in their remit? What do you feel that, that city planners can really do about logistics? Insist on parking, being converted into something else? Where, where, where are we at on that? Well, I, I think in, in the Nordics, at least, we have a, a good possibility to, to, uh, uh, to um, handle this question. I think we have the tools that we need. Um, I mean, the, the spatial structure is, is designed by the city planning officers and uh, uh, concerning parking and public spaces, it's it's uh, run by by other departments in the municipality. So if you say that the municipality as a whole, I think we have the tools that we need to regulate and and and, and giving um, conditions for for this. But this is also what I mean because uh, we don't have to be so specific anymore. We have right, to be right. much more open. And as as you say, John, the example you you you, you just uh, told us about with the kitchens yeah. we, we have to be open in the planning system so we can allow this without a very long planning process so mm -hmm. it should be much more open and we should be much much more much much easier to, to allow this kind of innovations because mm -hmm. we, we haven't seen all the innovations that will come in the future mm -hmm. Yeah, some of these things, it's, it's interesting, There's, some of these depend on a certain level of density for them to kind of sure. work in the ways that we'd like to see. Exactly. For, and, and a lot of it, and, you know, Pittsburgh's, like, highest density neighborhood is about 22,000 people per square mile. It's in Squirrel Hill, which has sort of very, one of the healthiest business districts that's sort of a neighborhood business district and uh, still still working. Uh, and that's about, I mean, the, the rough math is, like, you'd, you'd end up with 50 dwelling units per hectare. Uh, and um, the uh, and uh, twenty in, in acre, uh, dwelling units per acre. And, and, uh, the um, so and, and actually for Pittsburgh, if you were thinking about future densities, which we are finally, and it's something I was able to help get the funding for, and my successor is now going to, going to run this program. We're finally doing the comprehensive plan that we always were ready to do, and finally doing the kind of uh, scenario planning is like integral to it, and sort of basically explaining scenario planning to the larger population and involving them in that. I don't know that we're going to get to the level of really helping people understand what a Pittsburgh would be if it all got to the certain type of density, though I hope that's part of the dialogue because it's the only thing that will really work. And it's, I'm, going to, I'm going to use this as a segue to um, that, that level 
of density, which can provide both some sort of suburban amenities, it's more creative ways of using a single family zoning lot than we generally do, although places like um, uh, Atlanta and others are really beginning to move towards that. Uh, there's, uh, but also then give for the uh, sort of a, a you know a healthy mix of, of of different options in terms of housing, and also the potential for a thriving smaller business district, both in terms of the things we know work in retail today, like restaurants, but also in some some services uh, and some showcase kind of places, you know, the Apple Store or more uh, mm-hmm. sober ones. But um, the um, but all this is a way of saying that I still think we want to talk a little bit about the first mile, last mile. In terms of there's 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 the first mile, last mile in terms of trips, both for freight delivery, service delivery, goods delivery, and journey to work kind of activity, but and so and how to make that a healthier and you know both for abled and uh, otherwise abled folks, you know how that sort of all works. But it's also a question of like, can't we with this change and with the rise in remote work, um, can't we do the thing that we always say we want to do, which is actually have these neighborhoods hubs. And, you know, become the places that, that we're always kind of on the verge of this really coming. And then it sort of like unravels again. And then uh, our kind of retail shifts unravel it. But I think we are kind of, you know, taking this seriously, the 15-minute city, uh, which are the 15-minute neighborhood, I should say, mm-hmm. in which all these things, most of your needs happen within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. And in fact, mm. you can do, and you do, in fact, you will choose to do some of, to be an amateur, the amateur logistics. And the reason you'll do it is because, you know, the value added of the amateur logistics is in terms of, you know, there's, there's sure. studies showing that now that people don't get their own groceries, the level of exercise is like just, it's collapsing in the United States yeah. because the last thing people did was walk from the car with the grocery bags oh, and walk up the stairs. And, you know, but yeah. those are not minor, at, those are actually legitimate physical activity. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, I, I, I so, so it's a, uh, all that said. It's, it's tragic like, that you say, true, Ray, but it is a little bit tragic. Well, but I, it's, I, well, it's tragedy is part of life. Uh, the, uh, certainly the Nordics know that, uh, but, uh, the, uh, um, but, but I, I think there's a, uh, but that 15, no, I, it seems it's a little corny and it's like, you know, uh, it's, it can, it could be very corny, but it's like the idea that people are now going to be more around the home base, which then allows a whole different set of considerations. It's like, if you're around the home base, rather than going to the office every day, the idea that you're going to walk 10 minutes to a smaller grocery store, sort of, you know, and so forth, it all becomes normal in a way that with your time, or at least your perceived schedule, you didn't have time to do. Similarly, like, you know, we still have neighborhoods in Pittsburgh that have still have the school walkable distance from people's homes, yeah. still have the yeah. place of worship, you know, all that. We still actually have those. They never went away. Yeah. Uh, but most people don't actually enjoy that. And, 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 and it's often, and, you know, especially neighborhoods that had it that were, you know, uh, have you know, equity challenges of, of lower income and uh, they they lost it because their 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 neighborhood was more fragile in terms of the uh, the the, uh, the viability of the shops in the in the neighborhood. But there's if, if you're serious about this and serious about just looking in the picture of trips per day. And, but there's a, there's trips that have an added value which makes them part of a kind of health and wellness scenario. And that's also a mental health thing as well, that we know this, we know, and especially as the population ages, and we know that aging populations, 
the happiness factor for them is often not based on deep friendship. It's on casual interactions uh, that are, you know, which is, you know, which was the whole thesis of Jane Jacobs, a kind of neighborhood uh, vision, you know, 50 years ago. So, and there's more sort of science sort of supporting it than there used to be. But um, I, I, I don't, I think we have to like use this as an opportunity to kind of strengthen that. And, you know, there, there's a role for technology in the strengthening that, although the foundational role for technology in strengthening that is the fact that people are working remotely so that that hour or two hours of their life that was dedicated to uh, movement, uh, to, to a journey to work yeah. is, 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 is uh, no longer a daily occurrence. I think what you are saying, what you are saying now is really, really interesting because when we should leave the pandemic now in, in, in some some period of time, uh, there is a, a window of opportunity in some sense. So, so the possibility to to redesign and reconsidering things is is now, and and um, I totally agree with what you are saying. The fifteen minutes city and so on to to bike and walk. And in Sweden, at least, and maybe also in the U.S., there is a structure. I mean, the idea of of planning during the 50s and 60s was the idea of of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So so the structure is there with with many small uh, centers. And uh, you can build this kind of uh, uh, hubs that you are describing. The, The structure is there. So that's all, that. That is also what I mean. If the big cities should compete with the smaller ones, you have to strengthening these districts, the neighborhoods, and if you do that in a proper way, and if you are creating this fifteen minutes walks and the local hubs, I mean, the attractiveness of of the big cities will be uh, rising again. So. Uh, if we should say something about the future, I think there is a window of opportunity now to do things that was wasn't possible before the pandemic. So using but, the pandemic as a force to make changes that would be necessary for 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 meeting a more sustainable way of living, for example. On the on the on the fifteen minute city, I actually think that it's a very interesting idea, partly because. Um, maybe surprisingly given who it's come from and who most uses it, which is often politicians. Um, uh, it has a, a, a very, I think, very fresh and very deep theoretical potential. If we talk about, you know, the, 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 the Nordic cities that you, the, the, the 50s and 60s Nordic city planning that you mentioned, Krista, I think there is actually a subtle difference between um, a, 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 a structural model and a time-based model. And the difference is partly that, actually it's something that you yourself are raising which is the difference between certainty and uncertainty right you have a boundary of what is spatially viable but you don't make necessarily technical assumptions or spatial assumptions around exactly how those you know you should structure the components of the 50 minute city and so i think there's an interesting shift in in theory terms um from a sense that we've got to have the shop here and the church there and the housing here and the office there and the gardens there um to something that's a little bit more dynamic but still has a bounding structure and that bounding structure is itself in a way almost you know it's it's not necessarily a new idea but it's it's an idea that's newly in the fore which is how much do people want or need to be displaced to get fundamental economic things done and that comes back to one of your points ray which is you know balancing um planning and zoning and economic functioning 
and uh, well-being and physical health, mm. right? That's one of the reasons why I think it's actually much more pregnant than saying local cities, which was the classic model, you know, we localize, mm. is that it actually does imply something about displacement. Um, and I think that you can, you know, you can start to, you can start to sort of play with the idea and say, well, we, we need people to move at least 15 minutes a day, right? It starts to be a blended dialogue around not just, you know, the distance between, you know, urban functions, but actually how much we want to need people to move uh, because exactly as you say, the, the the on-demand economy leads to you know one of the worst worst features of the modern economy in general, which is sedentary living. Right, we just do not move enough. Um, I think on the on the planning side, I mean, on, on on that point, do you think that um, planners are themselves talking about the fifteen-minute city or this kind of densification of functions, uh, or is it still in the area of sort of political themes? How do you feel that this is moving forward in terms of a planning practice? The fi- I mean, the 15-minute city model. No, I think we are quite um, uh, familiar with that um, uh, way of thinking today. Uh, and, and planners are, are still adopting uh, new ideas, of, of course. Uh, but uh, my, 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 my main thing is that we have to be more flexible. That, that's the most important thing. Uh, mm. But I, I think there's also a big difference between the US and, and the Nordic countries because we have a planning monopoly in, in the Nordics and I right. don't think that you have that in the US. So, so that means that we have a very strong tool to regulate uh, mm-hmm. everything in this planning monopoly situation that we have. Mm. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, right. It's it's a uh, well. It is it is frustrating, and sometimes because like we have, you know, even most progressive cities in the country, and I'm gonna not name them right now, but they, you know, who who, who avow everything is about you know equity and so forth. Meanwhile, they're this wildly gentrifying. You know, the next town over. You know, which is you know had a had a you know very vital culture and very successful, but you know all the numbers have changed because wealth has moved across the border, and uh, so we when that's a that's the sort of stuff that is very hard to regulate, even even in a in a, uh, a more in a stronger planning uh, capacity entity, uh, but um, that's where you know we just have we if we're going to live by the progressive uh, for the progressive cities, it's a very tough tough time right now. In terms of, but I think that there there is work being done that sort of just and shaking up notions about how things should work. You know that a single family zoning. You don't have to say that everything's going to suddenly be thirty units per acre. Uh, you know, multifamily or, mm-hmm. or structures. You can look at it and say, you know what, we're going to have accessory. To, you know, we're going to make it easy for you to turn your place into you know, add an extra unit, mm-hmm. and that will radically change the the way that um, that the population densities. It seems. Subtle, but it actually could be a radical change. There's a lot of uh, incremental radicalism that is going to be the kinds of things that we need. And I think it's the same thing with the 15-minute city. If you're serious about the 15-minute city, you're going to be serious through about the sidewalks and the curb cuts mm. and, mm. and the mobility and the lanes that are used for drop-off. And you're going to, and, and you know, the rise of, of AV and augmented uh, connected uh, streets. Um, if you're serious about all that, you're going to you're going, it just changes it changes everything it changes everything about in terms of your you know instead of like sort of begrudgingly you know fixing up one pretty little street you know because like the the local merchants want it 
you know, which is a fine thing to do. But you're going to have to think, you know, you're going to figure out how it threads into the neighborhood in a more serious way, because you're going to assume that no, actually, everyone isn't going to drive here, they might actually walk here. And that changes. And that's, I think, you know, by example, by somewhat by mandate, somewhat by change zoning, you know, we can we can do all those things, because it's, you know, it's the most, uh, you know, we all need organizing principles, even if they've already existed for some time, like the 15 minute city. And that, that is active in terms of departments of mobility. You know, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a, it is, it becomes some um, around, you know, like the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure in Pittsburgh and which, you know, these ideas and I, I mean, you know, with the new administration and the new Department of Transportation lead, who's a former mayor who knows everything about technology and has a very, you know, contemporary ideas about sustainability, I think we're going to see this stuff, you know, move forward. It's already in the, kind of professional establishment of the the bodies that set all our street standards and so forth. It's already, that's already there. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, actual implementation and moving it forward. That's going to be a lot of work. So, um, but I, I'm very hopeful about it. Hmm. Christo, I know you have to jump off soon, but let me just ask you this question to capture this, 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 uh, this point, which maybe wraps up some of, some of these themes. Hopefully, Ray, you can stay a bit longer and we can, we can cover a couple more things before we round sure. off. But Christo, on this point, so um, let me, I mean, it's a bit of a provocative question, so push back on me and come with whatever answer you prefer. But here's a question to, to bring these threads together. If we want to see... Um, cities that have more integrated user services and service economy, both from a social perspective, economic perspective, logistics perspective, landscaping perspective, overall density, should we focus on the housing and offices as an anchor? Should we focus on infrastructure and logistics? So, for example, converting parking, loading centers, warehousing, or should we focus on processes? So, as you say, scenario planning, making sure the regulations update and so forth. Is it is it housing and buildings? Is it infrastructure? Um, or is it systems and processes and regulations? Well, I think it's both, in fact. Right. Um, that was the easy way out. I was hoping. <laughs> the, the housing question is the most crucial question <laughs> because in the housing question, you are hosting both uh, uh, climate and, and social aspects. Um, so, so, so you have to consider that quite uh, seriously, um, but in very good processes and processes that uh, uh, is more adaptable, uh, more easy to change, maybe with scenarios and, and so on. And uh, I consider that we will see much more of this combination in, in the future because you, you always have to put everything in some kind of context. And mm. uh, um, I mean that um, when I say it's both, I mean that you must drive the planning question uh, with a direction of values. What mm. would you like to achieve uh, with your planning? Uh, what kind of qualities uh, do you mm. want to achieve? And, and that vision must lead you through the process and make the process more adaptive for new ideas. But but the direction should be kept in some way. And that's why it is so fantastic interesting to work as a planner and architect, because 
um, it is um, a way of always keeping the perspective of the systems, mm. if you know what. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Mm. Yes. I mean, I, what I would, so a phrase I want to share with you, because I'm going to use it more and more, and I, I'd like us to sort of gather around conversations around these things is integrated or embedded planning, because whether you start with housing or you start with infrastructure or you start with economic systems or you start with inclusion um, or you start with, you know, process um, framing and regulation, it, it seems to be that an underlying theme of all of these things that we're talking about is that there is a greater expectation of integration or embeddedness, a slightly more technical word, mm. of the economy in the space mm. or the spatial dimensions of the economy or the social implications of that, you know, uh, the, the social dimensions of the planning project. And I think that we don't really have a formal um, framing of that yet, but getting we get close to it when we talk about the, the natural system thinking uh, properties of architecture and urban planning. But I think that certainly the service economy, where you, you, you bounce from parking to delivery to food to inclusion to safe streets to reduction of you know vehicles on the streets. I mean, the, 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 the density of questions around what seemed like a relatively simple step you know, that speaks to me around, you know, that that encourages me to use words like um, integration and embeddedness, which is why we talk about in business terms, what we say we do is service integration and why in my in my research work and sort of technical design work, I talk about embedding the economy in the built environment. Mm -hmm. But when you're saying embedding, uh, you can also say that in, in the spatial processes, you can also embed social aspects. Um, I, I, I heard you say a, <clears throat> a dialogue for example, mm -hmm. so if you could embed a good way of having a good dialogue with with, with the citizens during the planning process, you can also embed social and democratic issue in the process. So, so the process the processes they they can host many other questions, and, and yeah. um, that's something that we have to consider when we now are facing uh, more social aspects than before i mean equity health and as as we said before on, on which point actually let, let's just grab that that let's grasp that nettle uh, ray because it's, it's it's i mean to say it's classic is is patronizing and and wrong-headed but it is a uh, a, a, a deep-seated and long-term issue in the pittsburgh context in in spatial terms which plays out economically, social inclusion uh, and economic justice in the urban context. Do you have a sense that Pittsburgh is innovating in the right direction? Where are the persistent problems around the issue of how the spatial environment facilitates social inclusion and economic justice? Well, I think that the, um, you know, it's in Pittsburgh, it's been frustrating because the numbers uh, you know, equity has been recognized by, you know, the city for a long time as a huge challenge. And a lot of investment, the foundation community, the city itself, policy, it's at the core of the policy of the of the of the new comprehensive plan. It's like the the first step was to work with communities where which have had the greatest inequity and that continues. And there's also we the survey, Pittsburgh Survey 2.0 is basically set a challenge for 12 years from 2018 to 2030 in terms of are any of these statistics going to move? Or, you know, the sort of the greatest divides between largely, not exclusively this, but it's largely black and white populations, the difference in, in attainment, everything from educational attainment to poverty rates, et cetera. 
And uh, that has, uh, as I say, it has been remarkably, uh, the, the needle has not moved despite great work and great programs and great individual stories and, and so forth. Uh, from a, as a planning perspective, I think that the work that we started of actually bringing back the city in a direct involvement with neighborhood planning and making neighborhood plans actually be officially approved by the city, which was something that had not happened for more than at least a decade and probably 15 years, uh, was a, an important step. You know, like all, all those steps, it's imperfect, but it actually, you know, we now finally have like an official community document, a neighborhood document, which when new projects come to a place, it's like, this is, that is a reference point. You, you have to actually, you have to document whether it aligns or doesn't align with the neighborhood plan's intentions. And that's, and that, what that means is that all this kind of great work that was led by foundations and others in terms of like actually investing in communities that were facing a lot of equity problems and had very little resources for a long time can actually be resonate in the kind of regulatory process and have, you know, kind of a longer, a longer meaning. And that's, that's, you know, so, and, and yes, there are actually some really serious, so there's a really interesting work, which is not the city, but there's a really interesting project right now that's going on in Homewood, which is sort of another level of this. Homewood already did its neighborhood plan, but they're doing a lot of more environmental and sustainability related planning and sort of trying to envision a healthy community there. And partly through this incredible work that the Green Building Alliance is doing with, I believe, Kresge Foundation support, which is actually empowering neighbors, you know, community members to really be, you know, experts. You know, they're already experts on the community, but to really have, you know, a kind of a, a true shared, you know, to get away from the asymmetry of knowledge that happens in planning processes and really take that head on and then use that so that, you know, when in addition to that neighborhood plan, when like there's all kinds of when there's new proposals and new initiatives, like they really have a sustainable communities lens that is, you know, very grounded and, and you know, goes well beyond uh, the sort of just sort of catchwords. And I think that's been the closest to some really good, you know, sort of deep uh, community engagement work. That doesn't, you know, automatically translate in everything you need. And of course, there's other issues of policing and so forth, which go beyond what happens in a neighborhood plan. Uh, but um, it's, um, I think it's a, it's an important kind of empowerment uh, step and also an important kind of statistical analysis, you know, data, sort of making sure we're getting the right data. Both of those things are happening. And also that the people in communities are going to understand that data. It's not going to be a sort of a, mm. uh, you know, a box with uh, you can't understand the information inside. So yeah, I think there is good work. I think, you know, the current mayor and, and the really leadership that's happening, you know, and even the leadership that's happening at the university is to some degree as well are really, uh, it, there's, there's, there's good initiatives. But again, it's, it's what we see in 2030 that will matter. You know, it's like all these so all these programs so you'll find out. So let's take that one stage further. So I wonder, what I want to ask you is, do you think this new service economy can be converted to the good? And there's a couple of dimensions whereby one might think of it in those terms. Right now we have um, the so-called gig economy, which I consider a subset of this new service economy, which has mm -hmm. you know, been, I think, rightly attacked for some of its social justice and economic security um, mm -hmm. aspects, but it is also an employment prospect for lots of people. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one dimension. Can that be captured to the good? And if so, how? But also there's the question of 
thinking through distribution of services using the on-demand channels. Like one premise that I think is, is quietly emerging, although no one talks about it yet, is that the postal service can reimagine itself as subsidized logistics. So that if there's a weekly delivery that's subsidized by the city or the state or the region mm. for everybody, um, in the way that historically postal services are somewhat subsidized, I mean, it's basically a rebalancing of, of, of costs around the country, but essentially they're, they're, they're historically subsidized for the purposes of universal access to letters. If we apply that to goods delivery, maybe we can have medicine delivered uh, and nursing services on bicycles or scooters or, you know, mopeds or whatever. And so those are at least two dimensions of how a kind of, you know, both from the, as it were, the, the production side in terms of workers and the service economy, and then the consumption side, users having services distributed to them. Is any of that credible in an environment such as yours, which is right down in the weeds of fixing the basics of social justice, or is it up in the clouds and just not, not helpful? Well, I, I, I think that the service economy will... Wait, wait, let me, let me, let me finish. What, let, me, let me get Ray on that first, just so he can continue his track on Pittsburgh, and then we'll come to you, Christopher, briefly. I, I think there's no reason it couldn't. I mean, there's no, there's no reason that... Um, you know, the, you, the, the, all those things, uh, contemporary technology, contemporary innovation, contemporary, you know, uh, working with sort of smart systems effectively can all make that work better. And all of those smart systems have to interface with real life people at some point in terms of right. employment, in terms of, you know, customers, in terms of, you know, where, how the subsidy, where there are subsidies, how they're distributed and so forth. And I think that's you know, the same. A lot of work has been done on that on transportation, certainly. Uh, in 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 this in this region, and I think it just ex what you're talking about is really going beyond transportation, and then also trying to even with transportation itself. You know, we have a lot of trips that are really critical to first mile, last mile in certain areas where the bus service wasn't really able to handle it. But they they can cost eight dollars a trip, which is long term, just like the Uber investment, not not where we need to be. And the only way, and we're already using you know sophisticated software and so forth to make that work. But I think that, that but th the point is we know how to get to work on it. It's just a matter of how to make sure it's efficient enough. And I, I think it's a it's all very doable. And I think it does impact these communities. There's no, you know, they they're not cut off from the economy. I mean, they there's a, you know, there's a there are goods distributed. There's no income. There's an interaction. But I, I think it's all um, yes. I think that's a, that it does matter because. You know, at the same time, I would just note that there, we are also trying in this city to make sure that we continue to have, you know, we are not actually post-industrial in Pittsburgh. We are alternative industrial. Uh, industry right. is still very much here. It just, it just looks different. So, it's, uh, so I think a service economy, but a service economy, as you know, all, the, all these vehicles and all the, all the things doing the services are actually related to, you know, one way or another related to manufacturing, not just software. So right. uh, just part of the larger story. Krista, you were going to say, sorry for interrupting. No, no, my, um, it wasn't so, so important, but I think it's uh, the service economy will, of course, be a part of the future. Uh, but it's, uh, it's um, a little bit undeveloped today. So, so there has to be um, more, more, more uh, developed in, in the future than, than today, I think. And, uh, uh, the service economy is uh, challenging many systems. I mean, the labor system, and, and uh, uh, as we have had a discussion in Sweden about that. So, so there are a lot of things to be considered. And, and so far, we can see a lot of good ideas. Uh, and you are one of them, uh, John. Um, 
but still they have to be more efficient. They have to be uh, a part of the, the, the daily life or the daily, mm. uh, what you're choosing <laughs> mm. as a person uh, every day. So it has to be one much more included in, in our daily life. But it's absolutely um, a part of the future. Um, I think so. And the reason why I'm asking that is partly because um, uh, I, I myself am uncomfortable with the quality of the debate around these systems in in urban development, urban not so much urban planning, but just urban development conversations, because there's a very much a binary between the platform economy and the social development of cities and i think that that probably needs to end mm. whether it's just pure workforce how do we get people working with jobs that are secure and both secure and flexible to their conditions and their aspirations um, and how do we create um, social systems that uh, facilitate the kinds of social development that we want without assuming that we're just building the same cities as we did in the you know, 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and I think that um, hijack is not the quite word, but it's more than just collaborating. It's sort of hybridizing or forking or branching off from these commercial models and finding social uh, social and uh, pub public is better, I think. It's pub public uh, municipal framings of these things is important. My personally, myself, I think that the concept of the municipal X, the municipal bus, the municipal bicycle, the municipal delivery system, the municipal delivery job, right, the old postal worker, um, are things that probably can come back. Not not purely because we have some you know desire to re you know, just to kind of re repopulate the public sector and reanimate it ideologically, but just because it turns out to be a very practical thing to do. Mm. Right, rather than having competing scooter systems that just you know, leave trash across the city, we have a city scooter system that is you know public-private partnership or whatever. Um, anyway, so so it's good that you know you feel that, that that there's a potential to unfold these tracks further. Let's maybe park the conversation on our. I mean, we can we can extend it in, you know through two or, two or three points, but let's kind of zoom back out a bit and ask ourselves: What is a city centre? Um, what is the how do, how do we describe um, the essence of a city as opposed to neighborhoods uh, in this emerging service integrated uh, 15 minute city con context? And what I mean by that is as follows we talk about the great cities of the world, right? So whether it's you know uh, Delhi or Shanghai or London or Paris or Pittsburgh, well, no, whichever you know, choose. But the part, part of the essence of them is their aggregation powers. They are, they do big things as opposed to neighborhoods. They aren't just to distribute, you know, a set of neighborhoods. If what we're talking about now is the fifteen-minute city, as as it were, the essence of the good, the good life. What is a city center? What is a big city? Is there any? Is there any role for it? That's what I said before, John. Because the city center has to be reinvented in some some way because right. the, the the new behaviors in, in retail patterns and um, i mean still uh, the city centers are competing with uh, experiences with qualities with culture and that kind of things but that doesn't mean that the city center is alive 24 7. Mm. that's where the problem is so, I think that we have to consider quite quite seriously how the city centers will look like in the future. 
because uh, in some way they are being abandoned by by retail and mm -hmm. uh, there has to be has to come some something instead mm -hmm. and maybe the city centers could be transformed to a fantastic neighborhood and um, greener less cars slower and, and so on so so that will be a challenge but it's really exciting to to uh, redesign the city centers but there will be a change and and if we don't do anything about it the city centers will be a problem Ray, I know that in Pittsburgh there's an interesting history of the Heinz uh, family and, and 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 therefore the endowments being very involved in in making sure the specific downtown zone is is sustained and 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 anchors urban development. I mean, whether whether in Pittsburgh itself or for cities more generally, what is your sense of the city as a premise uh, in distinction to, as it were, fifteen minute zones where everyone's happy? <laughs> I'm still going to go for for happiness as the um, I think I think Bhutan is onto something with the national happiness GDP. But I, I don't uh, mean to be too cynical. What I'm what I'm sort of driving at is the idea. No, 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 no Wonderful sorry. hubs, right? People is, is, went to the hubs. I don't, yeah. I don't think we talk about it enough, right? The point, the point I'm making here, just to kind of put a little bit more of a fine point in it, is I do think that there is a tension between the classical role of cities as drivers of civilization and to some extent industry, and this idea that we're all now happy with the idea of a much more, as it were, homely premise. Uh, I, I, I sense there is a tension there, maybe there isn't. So, and that's why it's, why it's, it's an open question. Well, uh, yes, I mean, the Heinz, uh, I don't know which part of the endowments were you know, very involved with the uh, development of the cultural district, which was about adaptive reuse of structures, largely in some new construction on an edge of downtown and what had been a, a rundown area and um, the uh, and which was seen as sort of essential to giving Pittsburgh a kind of contemporary urban identity together with the building of new sports stadiums and uh, and then some new office buildings and some housing and then actually on the other side of town closer to the city hall point park university which had started as a relatively modest organization is now an uh, extraordinary one which has uh, sort of become a point park they they revitalized a whole portion of the city on the other side so there've been a lot of different forces including but not limited to the foundations that have sort of invested in, in downtown sure, yeah. the uh but I, I think that, you know, it's it, because that's one of the amazing things, because it's a dense, I, I'd say this, cities are always about opportunity one way or another. And that's, you know, that's the, and, and the, and the, in the Peter Hall theory of the creative city long before the, you know, Richard Florida's amazing, you know, I, there's a lot of reasonable conflicts and doubts about certain aspects of the Richard Florida thesis of the creative class. And he himself has written a book, which revises a great deal of his thinking about it. But the foundational thesis that he had uh, which was also, you know, like Peter Hall before him, and sort of one of the great theorists or and uh, writers of the narrative of the city is that you know these are places where you, this amazing kind of interaction occurs, in which people of great talents but from different arenas interact, and that's what the big city provided. That mm -hmm. New York, at kind of the height of its creativity, you know, the financier knew the college president, and some of this becomes a kind of elitist clique. But a lot of it is can be quite different than that, because actually a, a classic New York experience of a day in New York is in one day you would have actual interactions with people from different heritage, different classes, different work styles. It was 
New York had one of the most extraordinarily mixed experiences on a daily basis, and that's part of the, and that's part of its opportunity and part of its life as a creative city. And a lot of people, one of the reasons they were so, you know, in the, you know, the problem with the Bloomberg position, which was basically we're going to bring, you know, compete with London, which was really the foundational competition, was like we, you know, we only New York lives and dies on being a financial capital. It was in direct competition with London. London's taken care of that problem. Uh, but, uh, or rather, all the people who don't live in London took care of that problem very, very neatly. Uh, but um, the, uh, but it's, uh, but that was, the, the result was that there was this feeling that New York was losing its complexity, you know, that it was, you know, it was sort of a reserve for the rich. Uh, the, I think Bloomberg famously said it was kind of like a, a, you know, housing was a luxury product in Manhattan. The, uh, and so with that, the, 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 the impact of that was that we were losing the kind of foundational, you know, New York-ness and the financial sort of as a world city where that type of interaction can occur. But I, and I put it down to simpler things. I think it's like, an, it's a, I use the term density of knowledge, density of interaction, density of opportunity, you know, a lot of different ways. Some theorists have developed those terms Very in different ways. Uh, I use density of interaction to be everything from the neighborhood version of it to the downtown version. But that is, that's the only thing that matters in a downtown. Yeah. It's like, that's the only thing that makes it interesting. Now, sometimes that might, you might drive into the bottom of your, of an office building, go upstairs and never leave that building all day long. You may still have an extraordinary density of, of interaction because your company itself or the companies in your building have all kinds of talent and all kinds of uh, potential interactions. But this, you know, COVID and, and the kind of the current situation puts some of this into doubt. But all I ask when we look at this is look at the full complexity. Just you, it's like you, you need to map the entire day and see what interactions really occur because and and like and everything from you know putting in in the olden days your subway token or the you know the uh, to the your talk with the boss to the community meeting you know whatever it is in terms of different people's lives and so forth because that's where and or the bar and the dating and and culture uh, mm-hmm. all those things I mean it, that's where we kind of can sort of rationalize and see a future for downtowns because some people at different stages of their life are going to want a different for opportunity and that opportunity could be personal life that opportunity could be social life that opportunity could be economic viability they want like a crave and and are driven to I mean like classic you know the generations that have moved to New York they crave that kind of interaction at a very high level they want to have a hundred distinct interactions per day uh, and, uh, and that's, and that's, you know, that's what makes life exciting. And that, that is what a New York life could be like. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that we got to get more of, you know, if we, we just need to take that seriously. Uh, it doesn't have to be through a Jane Jacobs lens. It doesn't have to be through, but we just need to take interaction seriously as part of the culture of a downtown. And then we can figure it out from there. That's very elegant. What I would say, what I would say there is that what you're, you, you add a layer, and this was one of the things exciting about architecture and, and, and urbanism in particular, is that there are always more dimensions to bring into play. And, and I think this is a very foundational one. What you're saying is that what makes the city, or in particular makes the downtown in the great city, uh, or the center of the great city, is its density of opportunity, which is a great phrase. I think that's actually more comprehensive and more um, uh, harnessing of implication than just say creativity. That's why we have to discuss density in new ways, exactly what you are doing now, Ray. Uh, because uh, traditionally, when we are talking about density, we are talking about square meters and economy. 
and that mm. was the Florida and Glacier also is doing, but uh, they are challenging now their, their theories, I think, because it's much more um, concerning density of knowledge, uh, culture, people, and so on. So there will be some new layers, as you say, and also, Sir John. So, uh, what a great conversation! Thank you so much, gentlemen. I know, Chris, you've got a runoff, so I preempted you there to give to, to to allow myself to 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 round the conversation off. I think to land on density of opportunity as a as a sort of calling card for for, for further extensions of this yeah. conversation and this content is is a great is a great one. Thanks so much for contributing and looking forward to carrying on this conversation in your respective cities and in general. Absolutely. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. And uh, maybe we will meet in Pittsburgh when we are allowed to to um, fly abroad again. So thank you so much for being part of this. Well, I thank, thank you. Thanks. And I, I look forward to seeing you on, the, on your side of the Atlantic as well. <laughs> you are so welcome. Just give me a call. Okay. Okay. Thank Bye. You. Thanks. Bye.